Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Land is central in the construction of identity for many communities. For Ute Native Americans, the meaning of a 12 million acre homeland in western Colorado is intricately linked to the various ways they understand their heritage and future. Brandy Dennison narrates the history of this community's removal, remembrance, and return to this land in the book Ute Land Religion in the American West, 1879 to 2009. She argues that discourses about religion were essential to settler colonialism in the American West. These took shape through justifications for the displacement of Utes in civilizing missionary projects, imagined nostalgia about pre-contact Colorado, and as means for Ute to warrant inclusion and return. The category religion was deployed in a variety of ways by natives and white settlers in order to establish, deny, exclude, and restore communities within the region. In our conversation, we discuss the shift from notions of dirt to land, Ute engagement with the term religion, land and religious identity, Nathan Meeker and the 1879 conflict in the White River Valley, Ute removal, sexual purity, morality, and rape, Ute land religion in fiction and anthropology, the Meeker massacre pageant, the Smoking River powwow, and attempts at reconciliation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Brandy Dennison about Ute Land Religion in the American West, 1879 to 2009, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2017. Welcome, Brandy. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is an excellent book. Uh, I think anyone either focused on Native American traditions or the study of religion, uh, really needs to take a look at this book, uh, Ute Land Religion in the American West. Uh, before we hop into the book, though, it's always our custom here to to learn about uh, our authors and a little bit about how you came to the study of religion, uh, what brought you to this particular subject matter, uh, kind of what, what made you the scholar you are today. All right, great. Well, I was um, born and raised in Western Colorado, and um, both sides of my family were farmers. And um, I grew up hearing stories about um, um, the Utes, um, kind of, but it wasn't really a central part of um, my understanding of Western Colorado, um, which leads into um, um, why I decided to write this particular book. Um, but then I um, left Western Colorado because I just needed to get out of um, the dry culture and or just the dry landscape. And I went to Tacoma, Washington for an undergraduate degree at the University of Puget Sound because it was green. And that was really my only criteria. Um, but in selecting a major, I... Um, was really I really struggled with it, not because there wasn't anything interesting to me, but because everything was interesting to me. Um, I liked um, my political science classes. I liked my literature classes. I liked my um, um, history classes. And I found myself gravitating to the religious studies department more and more simply because I felt like it was a really nice intersection of all of my interests. And um, so I, I was a religious studies major as an undergraduate and um, then went to CU Boulder for a master's um, degree in um, religious studies. And um, while I was an undergraduate, I thought I was going to be a biblical archaeologist, um, which is a very different place from where I ended up. Um, but I found myself that being more excited b- about um, the way it, readings about the way that history is used and the way that religion is used. Um, I was reading a lot in cultural memory studies and um, realized that my interests were far more aligned with the modern period rather than um, um, the 
ancient past. And um, there I took a class with Michaeline Pizantibi and um, her, that class was where I did my first research project on uh, what later became the book. Um, so it's been a really long process of getting there. Um, and then um, after I completed that, I um, went to UNC Chapel Hill for a PhD in religious studies where um, my um, dissertation advisor, Lori Mathley Kip, really encouraged me to um, explore this project further. And um, really, my main interest was in these two questions of why didn't I learn about the Utes as a um, Western Colorado native? Um, why didn't I have a better sense of my own place's history? Um, and then this other question of um, um, there's this captivity narrative that came out of the removal of Utes where um, an Indian woman, um, her name is, she's identified as Susan in the captivity narrative, is why is she being described as having a Christian disposition? Um, why is it that the only sort of goodness that could be ascribed to um, um, Indians has to be framed through a Christian lens? So those are the two main driving questions for me to um, um, propel me to write the book and stick with it for um, such a long period. And um, I, I think I've um, answered those two questions, at least for myself, um, through the process of writing, writing the book. And hopefully those are interesting questions to other people and um, other people can find them, the answers to those useful. Yeah, and you, you do this in a, 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 a very well-written and uh, kind of measured way. Um, and I think you you are successful in kind of looking at the intersection of these these various histories and how they're they're reimagined. Um, so a lot of listeners might not be familiar with the kind of subject matter, even kind of the basics. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of set us up with uh, kind of a, a Utes 101 in, in a sense. What what types of things do we need to understand about the Utes just to get into your project here? Absolutely. So um, my um, project focuses on Western Colorado and Eastern Utah, um, but the Utes um, historically were a um, tribe that um, um, occupied the territory of present day Colorado and then um, Southern Wyoming, um, most of Utah, and then the Northern parts of New Mexico. Um, and, um, pre-contact that is before the, um, um, Spanish arrived, um, they were predominantly a hunting and gathering culture. So, um, um, they were also a bilateral kinship, which means that, um, um, a person identified their ancestry through both their mother and their father. Um, it's kind of unusual for um, um, indigenous tribes to be bilateral. They're generally matrilineal, which means they trace their lineage primarily through their mother. Um, but the Utes are just sort of this um, 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 unique little tribe and that they have a lot of um, um, traditions that are very like um, characteristic to, to them alone. And um, one thing that... Um, tied the Utes together as a group. Um, they were really sort of loosely organized. Um, there wasn't a really strong hierarchy. Um, it was definitely um, um, democratic in the sense that if you didn't like what one leader was suggesting um, that the group do in terms of hunting, then you just go and find a new, a different leader. Um, and it wasn't... Um, very like driven by um, violent leadership overthrows. Instead, it was just sort of this more fluid, um, loosely um, structured society. Um, also, the gender relationships um, were similar, similarly balanced as well. Um, by and large, men were the hunters, and by and large, women were the gatherers. But it wasn't a really um, um, strong division of labor. Women. Um, participated in hunts and men participated in gathering. Um, um, there are some tribes that are much more um, um, a, 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 a attached to the division of labor. Um, 
the introduction of the horse, which um, um, happened with the Spanish, um, really radically changed their um, um, their lifestyle. Um, the this happened in the in the roughly around the 1700s, and um, prior to this, the Spanish had the arrival of the Spanish had really um, 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 made changed the the captivity system that existed in the Southwest um, more broadly. The um, indigenous the, the Indian groups in the Southwest did engage in um, captivity and adoption and um, raiding where they would raid another group and capture people and then um, bring them into their tribe and generally adopt them. Um, and sometimes the captives would be enslaved, but the slavery that, um, that existed in this pre-contact time wasn't the same thing as chattel slavery where you were born into it and you would die in it and you would never escape. Instead, often people that um, were captured, became slaves, then might actually end up being adopted into a family um, and um, be married and start having children that had equal status in the tribe. Um, but those um, Spanish really started exploiting this system so that, um, especially for tribes that did not have access to the horse, um, they became victims of this more intensified um, um, system of captivity and slavery. So the Utes were um, enthusiastic adapters of the horse um, because this meant then that they could be raiders, um, raiders rather than um, the people that are being captured. Cap- um, captured. It also gave them much greater flexibility in terms of hunting. So um, it's much easier to hunt on um, horseback than it is on foot. And um, as a result, um, the men in particular began collecting as many horses as possible. And so horses became this um, status symbol. Um, For the Utes in particular, it was more like um, um, people that acquire lots of cars and have um, extensive garages full of different types of cars um, rather than um, other uh, um, cultures where the horse was actually a sacred um, um, animal. Um, for the Ute, the horse wasn't sacred, but it certainly was very important because it represented power and it represented the, it represented freedom. Um, by owning horses, that meant that most likely you wouldn't be captured. Now, from a kind of theoretical standpoint, uh, you tackle the category of religion and this idea that it's a second order category uh, the product of academic discourse. Uh, how how would you describe uh, Ute engagement with the term religion? Because I think this seems to be a, a large part of your uh, argument. And, and and then what does this Ute land religion um, this this phrase? What does it mean in your study? So in the time that I've since I've written the book and in conversation with um, my students, I've um, come to think about religion more as a designation of power um, um, than what I was talking, like it's sort of more of an outreach and thought and thinking and developing since I've written this book, um, that the term religion is very much wrapped up in um, who has the power in the society and deeming something as being religious is deeming it as being something that's acceptable and um, um, part of the frab- fabric of the culture. And so religion is very much, and from my perspective, is very much located within a Western colonial project that is a marker of set- settler colonialism. And um, when youths are engaging with the term religion and religious, um, they're generally doing it in order to find a way to participate in the public that um, is um, um, linked to um, white imperialism and therefore linked to um, these spaces where decisions um, get made. But um, 
many of the the youths that I interviewed, and then also in, in looking back at oral history interviews that were conducted in the 1970s, um, it really seems that um, they're in the 1970s. They're engaging in the idea that they're spiritual, not religious, and so there's a sense of um, rejecting of the term religion because it's too associated with um, Western imperialism. And um, this greater sense that what they are doing is um, um, beyond religion. And that idea of what the youth are doing is beyond religion is something that um, during different points in the 20th century, white allies of the youths really latch onto in order to um, sort of dip into Ute religious practices um, or Ute ceremonial practices as being um, um, the paragon of what real religion could be. Um, so again, it's this um, discourse of um, rejecting religion that's associated with Western imperialism and institutions and instead um, finding real spiritual and religious expression in these um, natural indigenous practices. And all of that, I think, is um, it's, it's definitely um, a social construction that's based on the time and place. And so I, I, tr um, I, I through the book, I track how um, um, a variety of people, like anthropologists and then um, uh, amateur anthropologists and outside observers are engaging with this idea of what authentic religion is. Um, and the youths are also engaging in that idea of authentic religion, but it's often for other means. Um, it's for making sure that they can have access to hunting grounds, um, or it's making sure that they can continue to um, practice traditional dances, um, or it's um, and trying to find access to um, U.S. presidents in order to argue for the restoration of treaty lands. Um, so um, I use the term land religion to talk about this collaborative space that's built around the sort of fragile idea of authentic religious experience and the idea that Utes have this authentic religious experience that um, whites can somehow participate in and um, have a sense of um, immersive religious experience, um, but is also this place where um, um, Utes are attempting to um, gain some sort of political or economic power. Another key component here in the book um that maybe we're jumping the gun a little bit in some of the details, but seems to be kind of a theme throughout is this relationship between land and religion. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the relationship between land use and religious identity, uh, both for youth subjects, uh, but then also how land is understood by white settlers? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that there's a movement from um, – dirt to land and how um, um, whites in particular are engaging youth spirituality. So um, with dirt, I was mainly focusing on Nathan Meeker, who was um, um, an Indian agent that um, was um, the head of the Ute Indian agency in what now is called Meeker, Colorado. Um, where he was in charge of dispersing rations and also in charge of um, teaching the youth how to become farmers. Um, and his engagement with, um, um, with the land was really um, material. He was actually working with the dirt. He was plowing it. He was um, um, encouraging youth men to also plow it. And it was this very sort of tangible thing. And when um, 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 Meeker and other people were thinking about Indian relationships to land, it was through this um, um, very material, we need to make them farmers. And there's a link to it of um, we need to make them farmers because they are currently not religious. And of course, in this case, religion meant 
um, they're not Christian. Um, Meeker has um, had multiple opportunities to um, observe religious, uh, traditional religious ceremonies, but um, he never um, identified it as being religious. And um, then the movement to land um, is this idea of abstraction, that um, land is this very abstract idea in the white imagination um, that can rep- represent the sense of um, purity that um, um, if, if you're familiar with William Cronin's argument in The Trouble with Wilderness, really, William Cronin is an environmental historian. Um, and in this essay, he's arguing that the idea of wilderness is very much wrapped up in ideas of purity and that once um, a person arrives in the wilderness, it's no longer wild. Um And the same way with land, that once the white person arrives in land, it's no longer um, authentically land. It becomes um, the sort of um, um, tarnished urban um, uh, environment, or at least an environment that's on its way to becoming urban. The same thing with um, the same thing that happens with you ideas of you religion, that when we were thinking about when, when settler colonials were thinking about dirt in relationship to Ute religious practices, there was no Ute religious practice. But once we get into this idea of um, land, this abstract idea, then um, Ute religions are also this sort of abstract, pure idea of being authentically spiritual, authentically religious. And um, there's um, a lot of effort to preserve that um, without being um, touched by Christianity. Now, uh, Nathan Meeker, you mentioned him. He becomes this key figure in the early contact between white settlers and the Utes. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and then his role leading up to this, uh, this conflict in 1879? Nathan Meeker is such an interesting person. Um, um, I was able to, in the, in the process of doing research for this book, able to read his diaries um, from when he was an idealistic twenty-year-old um, um, in um, a very like interesting time in American history. Um, so he's in correspondence with Horace Bushnell. He's engaging in uh, the um, ideas of the transcendentalists. Um, um, early in his life, he participates in a phalanx, um, which was uh, based on Charles Fourier, the French philosopher that um, was purporting the or, or, um, putting forward the idea that agricultural communities that are based in communism and gender equality would then bring about this perfect um, society. And so, um, um, his diaries at this time are just um, a really interesting catalog of what it would have been like to be um, uh, an American during this time period who's interested in um, religious movements. He eventually decides that agriculture really is the means of salvation, that um, agriculture is going to save society and it's um, going to save um, humanity altogether. And he, he's hired by Horace Greeley to be the agricultural editor at the newspaper. And um, in the process of doing this, he um, um, goes out to Colorado and finds um, a track of land that he thinks would be a great place to try out the experiment of um, uh, a society that's rooted in agricultural uh, agriculture. And so um, Horace Greeley and Nathan Meeker go, set about collecting people to uh, participate in this venture. And then that becomes um, Greeley, Colorado, which is um, um, about an hour north of Denver. And um, it, it's not, it doesn't fully work out. Like the first year, um, the trees that they planted die because they weren't able to get enough water. Um, people are really upset because it's not worth They've, they've left their nice home in New York and here they are in the plains of Colorado. Um, and their trees are dying and they don't have any food and they don't have their houses that they um, have been promised. And, um, Greeley dies 
Nathan Meeker is in debt to his estate. And so he just starts applying for every single job um, that is out there. Um, it's just like clearly a uh, um, desperation for him that he just wants any job. Um, he, he applies for these ambassador positions. He applies for all sorts of government jobs. But the one that he gets is as Indian agent to um, this very remote area for you Indians in Colorado. And so he packs up his family and moves um, up to the mountains. And um, But he never really loses his idealism that he had in his 20s. Um, um, his letters at this time are just like so hopeful that um, he is going to be the one that is going to make Ute men farmers. And um, um, he identifies the horse as being the main thing that is... Um, keeping the Utes from becoming farmers. And he was probably right. Um, the um, Ute men spent a lot of time um, training horses. They liked to race them and bet on them. Um, and they preferred to use the um, pastures that are the land as pastures for the horse. Um, and Nathan, of course, wanted that to be um, farmland. And um, this eventually escalates to the point where um, um, the Ute men are, um, feel so terrorized by Nathan um, that they start to terrorize Nathan back. And so then Meeker calls for the cavalry to um, come and um, the U.S. Army enters into um, Ute territory, which is a declaration of war, um, and they respond. Um, and there are two separate battles. One. Um, the Milk Creek battle, and then a second one, which I call the um, White River um, Agency battle. And in that, um, Nathan Meeker is killed, as well as the other white agency men. A number of Ute men are killed, and Nathan's wife and daughter, and the wife of uh, another agency employee that was also killed, um, are taking, uh, the Utes take them captive. So can you tell us a little bit more about the significance of the, what, what, what is the aftermath, I guess, of this kind of confrontation? So um, one of the big things that came about um, is the question of what happened to the, the white women when they were um, held as captives by the Utes. Um, they were in captivity for 29 days. And once they um, um, are released, then, um, um, all through the newspapers, the line was was that um, they did not suffer any of the indignities which the Bucks offered, um, which, of course, is a euphemism for saying that they were not raped. Um, and a central figure in um, the um, prevention of the rape of the white women was Susan. At least this emerges through the captivity narrative and then also earlier newspaper articles. However, um, our villain Meeker, who is Nathan Meeker's wife, um, writes a letter to the Pueblo Chieftain, which was um, the Pueblo newspaper at the time, um, asserting that, in fact, they had been raped and that um, they had been encouraged to um, lie partially because of the, um, the fraught nature of being a rape victim in the 19th century, especially for her daughter, Josephine, and the um, other woman that was a, a captive who was only 16 years old at the time. So you had a 19-year-old woman and a 16-year-old woman who um, were both mar marriageable, but would not be marriageable um, if it was widely known that they had been raped by um, Ute men. And this narrative of um, the, um, that the white men, women were raped then becomes the impetus for Congress to act and to move forward quickly with the removal of um, Ute all, all of the Utes from Western Colorado. And there is an effort um, by the military to identify the men that, um, in spe uh, specifically that had been charged with um, um, raping the women. And some of them were captured and taken to Fort Leavenworth. But um, it was also the entire tribe that was put on trial and that um, 
suffered a great loss of land um, as a result. Now, there's a lot of um, other things that are wrapped up into the removal of the Utes. Um, they were on um, the entire half, uh, western half of um, Colorado, which is a sizable piece of land. Um, um, near the Aspen area, they had ceded some territory because um, um, miners had located silver. And there was also an expectation that Western Colorado would be resource resource rich and that the um, Utes were underusing this land and therefore it should they should be removed and um, um, whites should have access to it. But all of this gets wrapped up into um, a rhetoric of morality that um, at their core, um, the Ute tribe is immoral and that um, with their proximity to other white women, there is this chance for um, women and children to be in continued danger. Now, from the other side, um, there is um, in in Native American cultures, it's been widely documented that the accusations that um, Native men raped white women um, were definitely overstated, and um, I think that that is um, absolutely true. Um, and there's also a oral history tradition among the Utes that the um, women, the white women were not raped. I actually um, contend that both are equally possible and both could be true at the same time. Um, we'll never know what, what actually happened um, in terms of um, whether or not the white women were um, raped. But um, in my book, I talk about the different ways of thinking about consent and the different cultural contexts for thinking about rape. Um, that um, rape is very much um, a, a term that developed in um, English legal culture that um, is about depriving white men of the property of um, and lineage of women, of white women. And so um, literature about rape often talks about how white men cannot rape, um, but um, men of color can rape because white men aren't, um, because it's, it's taking away that reproductive right from um, white men. Hmm. And then from the youth perspective, they're operating within this wider um, um, system of captivity, of the Southwest um, captivity culture, where um, women would be captured um, and would be adopted into the tribe. And being adopted into a tribe generally meant that they would be married to um, one of the men in the tribe. Um, and this doesn't mean that they consented to be married and they didn't consent to sexual contact contact, but it was within this framework of creating families and creating kinship. Um, so it wasn't the same sort of idea of um, overpowering um, women through um, through sex and through rape that then that woman becomes tainted and you don't like society doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Instead, um, um, sex could happen without consent within the um, um, native tribe. Um, but it was in the service of these webs of kin kinship. It's still uncomfortable to think about as um, not being rape because we are so um, um, sitting in the 21st century. We are, especially now with the Me Too movement, um, it's very easy to just think that um, any sex without consent is um, horrible and awful. And um, I would tend to agree with that. But we also have to think about the cultural conditions in which um, sexual relationships occur. Kind of the counterpart of this you know, negative production of uh, youths by uh, white settlers, um, there's also kind of a, a construction of um, good uh, Native women. Uh, and especially through two two figures who you who, who you highlight, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how how were Native women used in kind of the cultural memory uh, 
what what did they come to represent uh, in the context you're looking at? Yeah, so um, um, Utes were removed from Colorado in 1881, um, and in that um, period of um, the um, 1880s, really up until the present time, um, the um, white settlers of Colorado moved quickly to sort of fill the absence of uh, uh, the region's past, um, their, at least their own past, um, with um, particular constructions of Indianness. And there were two Ute women in particular that um, get highlighted through this process. And that's um, um, Chipita, who um, was the wife of Ure, who was recognized by the U.S. government as the chief of the Utes, although um, not all Utes recognized him as chief for the reasons I mentioned at the beginning, that Utes are um, generally non-hierarchical and wouldn't recognize one chief over the entire tribe. Um, but Chapita was um, um, often highlighted as being a representation of um, um, a, the good Indian. Um, and then the other one is Susan, who um, is understood to be Uray's sister, although there's some haziness about um, um, and that relationship. So Susan was the Indian that in the captivity narrative um, steps in to prevent the Ute men from um, raping the white women. So she gets um, exalted frequently. Um, There's also this backstory of Susan that um, um, emerges at the time of the um, Ute removal of Susan herself being rescued from being nearly burned at the stake by the Cheyenne um, um, Indian tribe. And she's rescued by the army and taken in by an Indian agent and then restored to her family. I haven't, I was on, I, I, the, the historical record does point to a woman, an Indian woman who was rescued from captivity from the Cheyenne and returned to her family, but the specific details of her being burned at the stake and also her being um, Susan um, is not, um, was not corroborated in the historical record. After the fact, um, people start retelling that story with the name Susan as the Indian woman that um, is rescued. And then there's all sorts of narratives about, well, she was rescued, so then she wants to rescue the white women um, that develop out of that. Susan sort of falls out of cultural memory, um, and Chapita becomes the person who is um, rescue, rescues the white women. And I think that that's partly because of their positions. Um, with being a, a former chief's wife, um, Chapita takes on this leadership role in her tribe that Susan did not. And um, she makes, um, once the tribe is removed, she makes trips to um, um, visit presidents in Colorado when they come. So one example is um, she visits President Taft. um, And there's this very striking image of her um, um, in a in a car driving down the streets of Montrose, Colorado, um, with President Taft. Um, I suspect that the reason that she um, intentionally went to um, see Taft was because she was wanting to um, advocate for the return of land to her tribe um, and also to ask for um, more money so that her tribe, tribe wouldn't be starving as they were at that time. Um, but it was really sort of treated as like this um, homecoming of sorts, but not a real homecoming, but um, sort of this like, look, the Indians aren't mad at us because Chapita's here. And isn't that great? And she's coming in peace and she's not angry with us. Isn't that amazing? Um, and it, it's this just sort of really tragic moment when um, it really seems like the, the two sides are completely talking past each other. Um, and But Chapita gets memorialized in all sorts of ways. Um, she's, an image of her is 
in stained glass in the state capitol at in, in Denver. Um, and um, there's novels written about her and um, all of this sort of fictionalizing going around um, her story as this um, Indian woman who um, is protecting white women from um, from Ute men. Now, uh, the the ceremonial practices of Utes uh, were memorialized and remembered uh, by non-natives in particular ways, uh, both in kind of fictional ways, uh, but also in uh, anthropological studies. Um, can you tell us how, how did religion come to be understood within these uh, this this kind of cultural remembrance of uh, of youth spirituality? Yeah. So um, the ceremonial dance that is particular to the Utes is the bear dance. And um, this is an annual gathering that pre-contact would have happened um, when spring is um, about to, um, to, to happen, like just before the, um, just as the bear is waking up from hibernation. And um, it would be the one time that all of the, the Utes would gather together in one place. Um, otherwise, they were spread out um, across that very big territory um, in smaller bands. And um, it was definitely a sacred time in that it was set apart from everyday time. Um, and um, it was also the time when... Um, new sexual relationships would be established. So um, um, women would decide to leave um, their current arrangement and um, um, engage in a, a new relationship. And divorce was a very sort of easy thing if both people agreed, or even if just one person agreed, whether it's a man or a woman, um, the relationship would be over. And um, um, the people would move on to a new one. And that often happened at the bear dance. When, um, by the, the late 20th century or early 20th century, when, um, American, um, anthropologists are observing the bear dance, um, they see it as being not as sacred as the sun dance, which the Utes adopted around, um, the 1890s. So about the time that they were moved on to reservations and they, got the Sundance from the Shoshone. Um, so this is not a, a Lakota style Sundance with the body piercings. Um, instead, it, um, there, there isn't body piercings, but there is um, long periods of dancing around a sun pole. Um, but the anthropologists really focused on the Sundance as being an authentic expression of um, religion. And the bear dance was just a social thing. Um, and so there is this work of um, distinguishing real religious experience as being something that can't be about sexual relationship, relationships, but instead is about um, attaining shamanistic visions, which is um, one of the goals of the Sundance. Even though the Sundance wasn't a pre-contact religious tradition. Um, and the other thing that is um, happening at this time is the introduction of peyote. And um, there are some Indians, um, Zeke Kalasa, um, who is a Lakota Indian who worked on the Ute Indian Agency in the 1910s and 1920s, um, was very much anti-peyote use. Um, she saw it as being something that was destructive to the tribe and um, was doling the senses of, of the Indians. And she was arguing that peyote wasn't even a real Indian practice. It was just um, introduced by white um, railroad in owners um, as a means to control the Indians. Now, that part's not actually true. Um, it was in introduced by um, Indians in association with a um, peyote ceremony. And... Um, um, but there was this also like interest in separating it out as being inauthentic. There were other anthropologists that were interested in the peyote ceremony, but were very interested in 
um, finding the peyote ceremony that did not have Christian influences. So again, there's this quest for something that's authentic, that is apart from Western influence. And um, I think that they were on a quest for something that didn't exist because the peyote ceremony was very much developed in the time and place of the um, late 19th, early 20th century. And one of the cultural materials at hand was Christianity. Um, so, but, but the effort to try to like locate the pure Indian practice was very much at the heart of what, um, white observers of, um, of you, um, ceremonial practices were doing. Now there was this really funny moment, um, that, um, I just, I, I loved reading it and thinking about it, um, um, with, in, in, in regards to this authenticity, um, one of the things that happened on the Eastern Utah, um, Ute Indian uh, reservation was Indian agents had this very ambivalent relationship about, um, the dances. Do we allow the sun dances? Do we not allow the sun dances? Do we have the sun dances, um, um, be held publicly so that we can at least keep an eye on them? Um, and it goes back and forth almost from year to year um, in this sort of very schizophrenic way. But there was one time when the Indian agent decided that he was going to allow the Sundance to happen, but it was going to happen um, sort of at, at, at a, like a county fair type of thing where he was going to highlight the agricultural products of the, the Utes um, and also sort of um, highlight the availability of the land um, because at that point it was the reservation was still being sold off to um, white buyers. Um, and he was very proud of himself because he was like, they're, they're doing the Sundance and they know that they're not doing the real Sundance. It's just a performance. Um, and I'm very proud because the religious leaders or the, the leaders of the tribal leaders of the youths were patrolling the fairgrounds to make sure no one was drinking alcohol. And this is just all great evidence that um, my project is working and they're assimilating. And the reason I found this so amusing was that um, in order for a sun dance to be effective, meaning that the dancers can receive visions, um, there cannot be alcohol um, around the dancers. So the tribal leaders were adhering to the prohibition of alcohol um, that this um, um, white guy was thinking was his idea. But they were doing so so that the Sundance would be authentic. And it's just sort of this delightful moment of, um, um, of the appearance of Indian agency. Yeah, and uh, this the memorialization uh, kind of aspects, whether it's through kind of what we might consider research, although uh, a lot of this research is uh, questionable uh, because of some of the ethical methods, uh, or in these kind of more fictionalized accounts, uh, is really amazing that you you do throughout the book. And one of the uh, kind of more more recent events uh, that you look at here is uh, this Meeker massacre pageant. Um, which happens every year. Can, can you tell us what, what's this event all about? What does it tell us about this history? And, and why do you think it's significant in this uh, Utland religion narrative you're, you're outlining? Yeah. Um, so the Meeker Massacre pageant is a reenactment of the, um, the battle, the, the White um, um, River Agency battle that I talked about earlier. Um, and it's been happening annually since the late 1930s with a break um, for a few years because of World War II. And um, um, it's held in Meeker, Colorado. It's generally held in conjunction with the Range Call Rodeo, which is one of the um, largest um, and longest continual rodeos in, um, in Colorado. And... Um, um, it generally happens around the 4th of July. And um, it's there are lots of pageants that are going on um, in that time period of the late 1930s. Um, and this is just another um, effort of the um, Meeker um, um, 
Chamber of Commerce to get more tourists to go to um, Meeker, Colorado, which is um, a very remote place. There um, aren't easy highways to um, um, get you up there. Um, and so they're trying to draw in tourists. But they're also retelling the story of the Meeker massacre in um, ways at different points in time that always um, um, emphasize the rightness of the um, um, whites gaining ownership over the land. Um, in the 1950s, there is this um, injection of sort of sorrowfulness in the telling of the story. So that the last scene um, of the pageant, and this was the case when um, I saw it in 2009, um, the um, end result is, is that the, um, the Utes are um, kicked off their land and that um, um, as they, the people who are playing the Utes were generally um, whites dressed in red face, um, and they're generally the children of um, Meeker residents, are um, walking off the um, the stage with their um, heads, like just sort of in this hanging down, full of shame and full of sorrow, um, and the sense that they're cut off from their land, and um, as a result, they're cut off from um, their expression of spirituality. And it's very much in line with the vanishing Indian narrative, that if you take Indians away from their ancestral land, then they'll fade away, um, and they'll just disappear. And um, earlier iterations of the pageant were very triumphal, like um, we, you know, the, the white people won, hooray, but later iterations were much more emphasizing that connection to the land that the Utes had and just how sad it was that they were no longer here. Um, and it was also inviting the people who were um, watching the pageant to reflect on how the voices of the Utes might be um, um, surrounding us and the landscape um, um, in Meeker. So it was like all of these complex ideas about um, authentic um, Ute religion wrapped up in tourism and wrapped up in this understanding of um, particular understanding of place. Now, uh, you, you kind of take the book full circle in uh, the, the, the kind of final section where you look at uh, the Smoking River powwow, which... Uh, kind of brings the youths back into this uh, context and this conversation in, in kind of more uh, fulsome ways. So what what was this event in, intended to accomplish? Uh, what took place? How was it received? Um, and how do religion and spirituality mix, fit into the mix with this event? So um, in um, 2000, um, seven, eight, and nine, um, and 10, the Forest Service, the Rio Blanco Forest Service, which is, um, has its headquarters in Meeker and um, um, represents the public land that makes up the county where Meeker is, which is around 90% um, of the county um, is, is some sort of public land. Um, one of the, uh, um, they, the Forest Service had got a new director around this time, and he wanted to know why there weren't um, Ute employees working for that division of the Forest Service, because the Forest Service has a policy to um, reach out to the tribes that are historically connected with the regions and um, employ them um, so that there is like sort of this um, tied to um, um, the indigenous peoples that have ancestral ties to the area. And um, um, there were two women working in the office at the time, and um, they were charged with finding out um, the answer to this question. And one of them um, happened to be at uh, another event where there was a Ute man there, and she asked him um, why um, 
um, the Utes didn't come back to Meeker. And he just um, bluntly said, because we're afraid. And so the Forest Service then was trying to address that, um, that fear to return. Um, and it wasn't simply because <clears throat> of the history of violence that were surrounding the area from the um, um, 1879 events, but also because of ongoing issues of um, racism. And there had definitely been other events where um, um, the town had reached out and um, brought um, you Indians into the town for um, things like basketball games, for history talks and um, other events. Um, one Ute woman that I interviewed had taken her children to Meeker for a basketball game and um, they got called the N-word. Um, as well as other um, very sort of appallingly racist things. And she just simply didn't want to expose her children to that, um, which makes perfect sense. Um, And so they started thinking, the Forest Service started thinking about what could possibly bring um, Indians back to Meeker, and they landed on the um, answer of a powwow. So um, in um, 2009 and 2010, um, the U.S. Forest Service, in conjunction with um, the Meeker Chamber of Commerce and the um, local history society, sponsored um, a powwow that was billed as a reconciliation powwow. And um, Utes helped them plan it and helped um, um, organize it and help um, bring in um, um, dancers to the powwow. And um, it was by the um, organizer's own um, definitions, it was successful because it did bring the um, two communities together. Um, The second powwow included um, a buffalo um, um, dinner that was donated by another Ute tribe. And um, um, there was also ceremonies of intentional reconciliation where the descendants of um, um, some of the um, the warriors that were responsible for the Meeker um, incidents stood in the um, center of the powwow circle and Meeker residents um, lined up to give them hugs and shake their hands. Um, and so there were a lot of things that were really intentional about it, um, but circumscribing it was this idea that it was through Ute spirituality that reconciliation could be had. Um, There were um, people who were for um, lovely people who had the best of intentions, um, but we're talking about the success of the event in terms of the appearance of wildlife um, so that the wildlife they believed was blessing the event. Um, there was an appearance of a rainbow that got in, in, interpreted in, in, in the sort of sense that the land was speaking and the land was responding to the return of the Utes. Um, and um, ultimately, um, the powwow, which was said to, is supposed to be an annual powwow, um, is no longer happening um, partly because of a change of leadership. Um, but I, I also kind of wonder if the over-reliance on um, ideas about youth spirituality in order to achieve reconciliation um, caused the dissolving of it. Um, if What if there had been an intentional move to bring Meeker residents to the reservation um, so that um, Meeker residents could have a sense of how um, Utes were living and had been living. Um, so it would have been more of an equal exchange of ideas rather than this sort of ongoing cultural mining of um, Indian resources in order to serve white um, aims. Yeah. Uh, Brandy, this is, is a wonderful book. Um, I'm wondering if you could uh, let us know about some of the things you're working on now before uh, we wrap up the conversation. Yeah, um, so I'm really excited about my next project, um, which is also going to be located in Colorado and going to be building on some of the themes that I address in my first book. Um, But I will be um, investigating the question of how did Boulder, Colorado become the second most secular city in the United States, Um, especially when Boulder is 
um, having gone to school there and lived there for years, is definitely full of all sorts of spiritual expressions. Um, and so I'm um, going, to, going to be doing a micro history of um, 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 the religious landscape of Boulder with an eye towards um, engaging in um, the, the literature on secularism in the United States. Wow, that sounds fascinating. I, I can't wait to, to hear all about that being a, uh, a fellow buff. So, uh, well, Randy, thanks for making the time to uh, talk about this great book and, and good luck on your next project. Great. Thank you very much, Christian. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brandy Dennison about her wonderful new book, Uteland Religion in the American West, 1879 to 2009, published with the University of Nebraska Press in 2017. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and you've been listening to New Books in Religion.